Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Record Rangers podcast. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined as usual by the Sunday Mail's Scott McDermott. On the pod today, does 14-goal striker Alfredo Morelos get the credit he deserves? We look at the Colombians' value to Rangers. The number 10s, the potential number 10s that Rangers could look to sign in January. And we talk to Orion sports scientist Bob McCunn about the technical issues facing Steven Gerrard and ensuring his squad is in the best possible place to cope with the demands that have seen them play 25 games already so far this season. Scott, we're going to start with a question that was asked by a guy on Twitter called Joe Water Anderson. Do you know Joe? I've seen him. seen him on Twitter, yeah. Good guy, good guy. And he's asked us, why doesn't Alfredo Morelos get the credit he deserves? He's been. Has he ever been given a Player of the Month award? His all-round play is excellent. Anyone else scoring that amount of goals um, and putting the consistent performances he had, he has, would be branded a genius. Give the guy credit. So, Scott, the question I have for you is: Do you believe that he's not getting the credit that he deserves? And if not, why not? I wouldn't say that, John. I think Alfredo Morelos has had quite a lot of credit since he arrived at Rangers. Um, Certainly, we've said many times, I've said in the paper many times, that you know, for a guy coming from Finnish football, relatively unknown for a million quid at his age, the way he settled into Scottish football, into the climate here, the you know, the way of living, um, and obviously the game itself, I think has been, you know, has been a real credit to him. I think people do forget how young he is at times, I would say that. Um but listen, I mean, he's, he's, he has had his, uh, no, he the, has had his dry, dry patches, uh, and there has been no, there, there has been other issues. I mean, we spoke last season about the fact that Morelos went no, a good few months without no regularly scoring. He looked a bit, uh, a bit disgruntled, a bit huffy. There was obviously the talk about him leaving, and it looked as if it really affected him for a no a fair chunk of the of the season. Um, clearly, this year. No, there was still rumours at the start of the season about whether he would whether he would remain at Rangers under Steven Gerrard, but I think Gerrard clearly got a hold of him uh, in pre-season. No, had a word with him, told him what was what was going to be required if he was going to if he was going to make it in a, in a Steven Gerrard team or excel in a Steven Gerrard team. And I think to Morelos' credit, he has really buckled down and he's got back to. No, the kind of player we saw at the start of start of last season. I would argue this year he's been even he's been even better. He's looked he's looked hungrier. His finishing's been better. His work rate's been better. Um, at times he still looks a wee bit. You know, that South American thing, but is a wee bit huffy. But I think I think those occasions have been less frequent this year. Um, does he get the credit he deserves? 
listen, maybe he could get a wee bit more credit. Maybe the fact that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't do any interviews, he doesn't speak a lot of English, maybe that kind of goes against him because he's not kind of, no, he's not really the chance to put himself out there. He's never put up at press conferences or anything like that. So maybe that's kind of slightly gone against him. But listen, I think in terms of getting credit, no, the only people he needs to worry about is, is Stephen Gerrard and the, the Rangers fans. And they they certainly love him. I mean, Gerrard is now a huge fan of Morelos. I think the amount of faith that he's put in him this season already, uh, even after signing Kyle Lafferty. And we all know what the what the punters think of him because they, they sing about him every game. Scott, I'm going to bore you to tears here and give you some stats about Alfredo okay. Morelos. So um, you can interpret them. I'll tell you them. You can interpret them how you wish. Okay. Um, first one I thought was worthy of discussion was that his offsides are now only 0.77 per game this season. So he's been offside less than once a game, which I think is a massive, massive improvement on the well, that we saw this time last year. I was going to say, but did we know the start for last season? I don't have that to hand, um, but it certainly felt that he was getting caught offside significantly more than that last season. Yeah. Um, watching uh, Umar Sadiq in the game against Aberdeen, I think he got caught off five or six times in that yeah. game, and that was like watching Morelos last year. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, so that, that that's stuck out to me. I think um, in terms of goals and assists, he's got eight, two assists, six goals in the league so far this year. Um, that's uh, fourth behind Naismith, uh, Eduard, and Forrest, but only only by one. Um, yeah. He's second for uh, second assists, and he's fourth for third assists, which right. means that in terms of touches around goals, whether or not he's actually delivering the final ball, he seems to be involved much more heavily than other players that are high yeah. up that list, um, which I think is impressive. If we talk about negative, Scott, there is one. And yeah. stats, which is that in terms of shots on target, only 45% of his shots are on target. Whereas Ryan Kent, who's got the best in the league, is at 66% of his shots on target. Yeah. And odds on Edward, who many people would measure Morelos against, is on 63%. So I think he can definitely work on that. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd go along with that. I mean, I think that's that's the thing. I mean, I seen a stat uh, the other day in terms of goals and assists. Comparing him to Moussa Dembele, and it was it was very similar, if not Morelos even better. Um, and we all know the you know the, the praise and the publicity that that Dembele got. But I think, if we're being honest, no, Dembele was a more clinical finisher than Morelos. D- different different types of players, but I think Dembele was a better a better all round finisher. And I do think that's the part of Morelos's game. <clears throat> that does does need to improve. I think he's still. Well, I, I don't think I'm being unkind to say I think he's still a bit flaky in front of goal. I, you don't know what you're going to know what you're really going to get. I mean, when he went through in the last minute against the uh, Rapid Vienna, Ibrox, I uh, was at the game working, and as he's going through, no, I don't think. I think if Rangers fans were being honest with themselves, I don't think there was many in the stadium that thought. No, he's going to he's going to tuck this away. I don't think that's his. No, when he's get when he's got a lot of time to think. Um, I don't think that's when he's when he's at his best. No, he, he did tuck that away. It wasn't it wasn't the best of finishes, but he managed to he managed to squeeze it in. But I definitely agree. I think I think his finishing has to improve, um, and that is a bit of a gap. Now, if you're saying Edward is like sixty odd percent, Manelos only forty five. Then no, there's a bit there's a bit of work to be done there. 
One of the other stats, it's the last stat I'm going to bombard you with, Scott, that I thought was interesting was that he's he's actually way, way down the list for fouls suffered. So right. fouls against. Now, you would expect a player who's near the top on goals, near the top on assists, near the top on all these other aspects of attacking play to yep. have had a lot of fouls against yep. him. But he's actually 19th. And when you yeah. think there's 12 teams in the league, you know, that, that essentially means he's really low down. I wonder if his general demeanour, Scott, and his style of play means that referees are taking a harder line on him than they normally would on a player of his ilk. Yeah, no, I would go along with that. I mean, I think we, we spoke after the, was it the Air United game when he got booked to put him at the, at the semi-final and we, we thought, no, maybe his reputation was was going before him in the eyes of certain referees. Um and I still agree that that might be the case. I think it has built up a wee bit of a reputation for himself. You no, know, this kind of South American uh, style or South American characteristics that we, that we speak about might have gone against him as well. I'm surprised about that because you're right. I mean, he's always involved. He's the focal point now of Rangers' attack. He's played in almost all the in almost all the games. So. Uh, you would expect him, to be, and it, fe- it feels like he's been fouled a lot, and he wins Rangers a lot of free kicks. So, well, I'm, it should I'm be expressed, Scott. That. This is just the Scottish Premier League. These stats, right? Okay. Um, so, so perhaps because um, I, I was very shocked at that as well. But yeah. perhaps we're thinking more about the European games when you're not yeah. looking at it on an individual game basis. Yeah. One of the things that we'd have to look at when we're talking about Morelos is, of course, whether or not the gamble paid off. Because without going into the, the old story again about whether or not there was this huge bid coming in from China, we know that that causes a lot of social media consternation yeah. if you bring that up. But let's just take that at face value that that, that bid did actually happen. Yeah. Has the gamble paid off? I, th- I think it has, and it has because he has become Steven Gerrard's main striker, number one striker. I mean... When Gerard came in, there was a lot of talk about you know, whether Morelos would stay or go, whether Gerard would would like him as a player. Even myself, I thought I looked at Morelos and thought, is he really going to be Gerard's type of player? No, he's got that back kind of you know, that kind of huffy nature about him. I didn't think that would have went down well with Gerard or his or his staff. Uh, the first couple of games, I think, under Gerard, no, Morelos didn't show up that great, and again, you wondered whether he was going to, whether he was going to hang around and be part of the part of the plans. But you know, listen, fast forward three or four months, he's now, no, he's now one of the first names uh, on Steven Gerrard's team sheet. I think the player has really grown on the manager. The manager now believes he can trust him. He's backed him to the hilt every time. You no, know, whether it was the red card at Pretodre, the the red card in the, was it against Ufa in, in Europe? Yeah. Um. He's he's backed him. Uh, he's backed him almost every time. Even you no, know, that booking we're talking about against Air United when uh, that, that caused him to miss the semi final. No, I still believe Morelos was was really at fault that night, and it was. It, it cost Rangers big time because we, we all know what happened at Hamden with, with, with Sadiq um, playing up front. I know Stephen Gerrard said after it he regretted playing him against there, but no, that's that's the, the manager's got every right to play him. But he can tell Morelos no that night 
no, whatever you do, don't get booked. There's absolutely no need for it. No, we're going to dominate the game. It's against a championship team. Whatever you do, don't get a yellow card. And he pick up a booking for dissent. No, the way it came about was, I don't care what MD says, it was, it was unforgivable, really, and, and it cost Rangers. But even in that instance, Gerard, Gerard backed him. He's very rarely been critical of Morelos. So in terms of whether the gamble's paid off, I think you need to say it has because... He he has he has nailed his place in uh, in Gerard's team. He's been the number one. Uh, he's been the main striker in this qualification for the Europa League groups. So if they'd have sold him for even if you throw it out there, no four million, five million, who knows what would have happened in terms of no who Gerard would have brought in, would it have worked with the new guy have settled in? You just don't know. Certainly Morelos at the moment. When you look at his look at his stats and look at his goals, he's doing a, a sterling job for Rangers and, and Gerard. So I think you have to say the decision to not back any bids that came in, if there were any bids, was a was a good decision. Well the talk was of an eight or a nine million pound bid, Scott. And for me, well, that is very, very good money. And we discussed it at the time how we felt that, that Rangers should have accepted that kind of bid. I yeah. do think now that that's the kind of money that you would be fairly looking for because the difference now is he's done it at the European stage. He's done it at the European level yeah, and performed very well against, you know, good teams. So I'm not sure about eight or nine million yet, Johnny, I must admit. I mean, I really like him. I think he's done great. I spoke already about his age and about where he's come from. And there's still, uh, still a lot of raw potential in there at eight or nine million at the moment. I'm not sure. I think he's around the kind of four, four, five million tops mark at the minute. If he continues to do it, if he hits no twenty-five goals plus for Rangers this season, <clears throat> as you say, is he, if he continues to do it in the Europa League group stage or even beyond, then fair enough. That that valuation will quite rightly rise, and Rangers have got him in a long contract now, so they'll be able to they'll be able to name their price, but. No, without wanting to kind of pour cold water on, I think he's still got a wee bit to go. I mean, I watched him on Saturday against St Mirren. He's done a lot of praise after the game, obviously, get his goal at the end. Um, I thought he played well in the second half, but for 45 minutes, like every other Rangers player, you have to say, um, for 45 minutes in the first half, he was, he was pretty poor. I know the conditions were bad. You, were you there, uh, Scott? No, I just I just seen I watched the first half watched the first half live on TV before going to uh, before going to Parkhead to work at the, the Celtic game. And then I seen I seen bits of the second half and obviously I watched the highlights on Sunday night. Um but I thought the first half, as I say, like every other Rangers player, he was he was pretty poor. As I say, the the, the wind and rain didn't help, but I thought his touch was off. Um <clears throat> he wasn't holding it up well enough to get others into play. But I thought from the what I've seen that that obviously improved the second half. I think Rangers as a team got better in the second half. And listen, he took his goal uh, brilliantly. It wasn't an easy chance, but he does love that. He, he loves that wee channel and uh, the kind of inside right from that acute angle. We've seen him score a few like that in his time at Rangers. And, it's a terrific uh, finish. Yeah. Incredible power he gets, but for me, I think Craig Sampson's got questions to answer there. If I'm a goalkeeper, yeah. I'm not one to let that in. Yeah, the keeper could have probably done better. But as I say, he get from that angle, you no, know, 
he gets it on target and he gets it bang in the in the, the opposite corner. Um no, so there was real power and accuracy there. And as I say, he scored a couple of that. I remember he scored one very similar against Hibs at Easter Road in a game. Uh, I think it was a night game where Graham Murphy was, was in charge, but he does like running into that channel and no, he wasn't getting any joy like that in the first half on Saturday. Obviously the game opens up once once Kandia scores, but um no, it was a it was a really good finish and obviously it got Rangers the got Rangers the points. We've obviously been talking in great detail and very often about the, the difficulties Rangers have in breaking down these low-lying defences, Scott. And once again, St Mirren in the first half pretty much did exactly that. Very, very compact, well-organised and certainly worked their backsides off for their manager. Yeah. Um, do you think this is the the result in that moment of luck with Candia's strike? Because for me, it, it definitely wasn't deliberate. No that they absolutely needed just to give them the confidence to go into to these games that they've got coming up, knowing that they've managed to get the monkey off their backs in well, terms did, of getting the win. He certainly needed it, Johnny. I mean, <clears throat> at now-now with 15 minutes to go, you're looking at the other kind of fixtures, you no know, Celtic Hearts, Aberdeen Kelly, you no know, teams playing each other. Uh, you no, know, Obviously, Hibs eventually lost to St. Johnson, but you were just looking at that thinking, you no know, Rangers... No, if they're going to really do something in this in this league, no, it was weekends like that where they need to they need to go and take advantage. I mean, St Mirren had lost I don't know what six seven in the in the bounce to one point for the last ten games, something like that. So, no, that was a game Rangers had to win. Um, and as I say, with, with 15, 20 minutes to go, it was looking it was looking pretty doubtful. It was looking like <clears throat> certainly the first half looked like. All these games I've spoken about, you no know, Livingston, Hamilton, Aberdeen in the semi. It was looking like another one of these kind of, uh, no kind of average away performances. And you're right, they get a bit of luck with Candace's goal. That might just be the that might just be the trigger for, you no know, for boosting their confidence in terms of going to these away games. Um, I'm not sure, but by God, they needed uh, they needed that goal. They needed to get out of the weekend with three points just to, you know, just to keep themselves in touch. And obviously, Hearts dropped points, Kelly dropped points, Hibs dropped points. So it was crucial for Rangers to uh, it was crucial for Rangers to to win that game on, on Saturday. And I think in this, the celebrations that we that we've seen both on the pitch and in the the dugout, you could see. You could see what it meant to everyone. And of course, as you say, the irony of Rangers not performing very well over the last few games is that despite that, they have actually, if they look at the league table, they've they've improved significantly their position without having played well and are sitting in third place, uh, much closer to hearts. Yeah, and the, the good thing for Rangers is they're still well in touch at the moment. And the key aspect to that is that they're in the, they're in the Europa League group stage, which nobody expected. Um, I mean, I, I have to admit, Johnny, I think, and I don't know what most kind of Rangers fans feel about it, but I believe Rangers would have had a, a far better crack at the Premiership this year if they weren't in the Europa League group stage. I think if Celtic were involved at that uh, in those groups, you no know, every you no know, Thursday Sunday games, we know the drill. If Celtic were involved in that, but Rangers just had a clear 
kind of passage, if you like, where it was just league game after league game after league game. No, one week, uh, almost every week to prepare for these games. I think Rangers could have really you no know, went in a run and you no know, put put victories together and you no know, put real pressure uh, on at the top of the league. I'm not saying they won't do that. However, I, I definitely think the the Europa League campaign has been unexpected in terms of them getting this far. Now that they are this far and they've you know, they've done well in the first few group games, you no, know, the management and punters are looking at it and thinking, you no, know, we can maybe go a wee run, we can maybe get to the last sixteen, which would be would be fantastic. But you no, know, how detrimental is that going to be to the to the league campaign? Um, so you, thought- just, you just wonder. Yeah, I think commentators might say, listening at this, uh, well, Celtic have had the same issue, but I think the crucial thing about Celtic is they've got a group of players that have been used to that over the last few years. That's a big difference. It's been a massive difference. But um, actually, Scott, this is a good segue into a conversation I had today with uh, Orium uh, sports scientist Bob McCunn at the National Performance Centre, who was telling me all about the sports science issues around Rangers playing so many games, 25 to date this season in such a short space of time. So we'll go over directly to that conversation now. But the, the key reason that I wanted to talk to you was really about the, uh, the number of games that Rangers <laughs> have played at this point in the season. Mm-hmm. Their season effectively started on the 12th of July with a uh, European qualifier. And now four, four months on, or nearly four months on, they, they've played 25 games mm-hmm. in that period. How do you, as a sports scientist, manage that level of high performance at an elite level? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a difficult one. Um, obviously, we're talking in the context of football, um, which is a very demanding sport in terms of the, the frequency of games and also the length of the season. You know, we're talking about that season going from, as you say, as early as, as June uh, right the way through to, to May in some cases if you get all the way to a cup final. So it's a really, really long season. Um, and if you're a successful team and you manage to stay in a number of different competitions, then, yeah, you can find yourself playing, you know, 50-plus games uh, in a season, which is obviously a huge demand physically and mentally on players uh, coping with that. So, I mean, when you say how does a, you know, how, how do you cope with that as a, as a sports scientist or a performance manager, it's very difficult. You can't, I mean, the best you can do is, is mitigate, really, because the fixtures are, are what they are. Um, and obviously it's out with anybody's control to change them. So it's a case of how do you deal with the cards that you're, you're dealt. And, you know, there's a number of different ways that different managers and different teams can approach that problem. What, what are the um, systems that seems to be used by the elite clubs is periodization. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding of periodization, and as you, you could, as you could probably imagine, is fairly limited. <laughs> but my understanding, it's about um, having players peak at appropriate mm-hmm. times in the season in terms of fitness. Yeah. Is that something that they'll use? And could you explain that in, in layman's terms? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the way you describe it there is is absolutely right. Periodization as a concept is really just um, administering your training and your, you know, the, the the playing minutes that you give your players in such a way that you um, are not giving them the same constant load all of the time. So, you know, periodization as a concept is built around this idea of um, peaks and troughs in terms of the training load that a player endures. So rather than them getting hammered from day one of pre-season all the way through to the last day of the season, the overall concept of periodization is about trying to um, you know, put that load at different days of the week, 
different weeks of the season and, and different different periods so that a player's not just getting absolutely destroyed from, from the start of the season to the end. Um, so, I mean, there's a number of different factors that have to be considered within football. So, obviously, field-based training or, you know, the, the actual football training on the pitch um, is one element, but there are another or a number of other areas that players, um, you know, spend some of their time. So, they work in the gym, of course, and there's a tactical element, so there's a, there's a cognitive demand on players' time and energy there. Um, and not all of these things have to somehow be woven together um, to, to create the end result of a player who's physically fit but also knows what they're doing and can perform to the highest, highest level when at. Yeah, the, the best example from a footballing point of view of periodisation at work was probably um, Ferguson's Manchester United always seemed to pick up in January Mm-hmm. And 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 hit key form and just look so much fitter than the other teams and obliterate teams around that time of year. Yeah. I suppose the question I would have about about it is what happens when you're in a trough mm-hmm. in terms of the periodization model, mm-hmm. and does that begin to show in a tangible way for fans watching the game? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great point. I mean, it, it, it theoretically it can do. You know, you have to be careful when mapping out your season and deciding when you're going to get at the players and when you're going to maybe pull back a little bit. Um, and be careful to do that at times where you think you can still win. So, you know, what one approach is to look at uh, the opposition that you're playing and make some decisions around where you think you can win while still training very hard. So, you know, if you, if you know you've maybe got a run of games where you're playing quote unquote lesser opposition, a manager may feel that they can actually get away with, you know, beasting the players in training and still being able to beat the opposition in front of them on a Saturday. Whereas you may have other points in the season where you know you've got a really tough run of games or you've got a really high um, you know, frequency of games in a short period where you might decide to take the foot off the gas a little bit. Um, and, and you know that might be a trough in terms of training, but you know, you're focusing your energy on the game. But it's fraught with difficulty and risk because you know, the last thing you want to do is overcook your players and train them hard and then put them into what you thought was going to be an easy game. And then they, you know, they go... Obviously, carries a huge amount of risk as a coach and a manager because it can make you look very, very foolish if your supposedly brilliant team is losing to, to to weaker opposition. So, yeah, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer to that, and different coaches will have a different approach and a different threshold of risk that they're willing to accept with that. Um, so, yeah, it's a tough one. That's one of the things that makes football so intriguing from a from a sports science and from from a management point of view is deciding how and when you're going to you're going to focus your effort. And in your understanding of how how it would work in elite football, would there be a conversation where the sports scientists would say to the the, the manager? So, in the mm-hmm. case where that we're discussing, it would be Stephen Gerrard. Mm-hmm. Look, based on the 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 figures that we're getting from um, from all the assessments that we're doing, perhaps you should leave this player out for for, mm-hmm. for this game because physiologically he's not looking at his best. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to the manager to make that call. Yeah, I mean the type of um, the type of practice you're referring to there is uh, monitoring, you know, athlete monitoring, which you know most clubs will um, impose to to one degree or another. Um, some some clubs will have a, a broad battery of tests and assessments that they'll do with players almost every day um, and obviously in doing so collect a lot of data and then try and make decisions like you describe based off of that information um, but you'll also have some clubs who actually collect quite a 
you know, a, a positive information. We don't really collect that much at all, um, but maybe focus on one or two key metrics that, that they think are important. And then, then again, try and inform some of the decisions that the manager faces based on that. But wh while that sounds good in theory, and it is widely practiced, you know, in the real world as well, it's, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult thing to do because, you know, what measures do you use? That's that's one of the key questions any sports scientist working on football faces is what test or what assessment am I actually going to use to try and capture that, you know, fatigue usually is, is a, you know, a concept we're always chasing a sports scientist to try and quantify, you know, how fatigued are the players, how fit are they and how ready are they to perform. Very, very difficult to do. Um, if you do decide to use lots of different tests, you can be left with a ton of information that is quite difficult to interpret and you might get one measure, you know, for example, you might get a, a blood measure suggesting that the player's fit as a fiddle and you might get a, a, a perceptual, you know, you might ask the player, how do you feel? And they might say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, absolutely, I'm absolutely knackered. And then you're faced with a decision, well, which, which marker do I, do I follow? So it's That's really interesting because it's also the, the mental aspect of fitness. Mm -hmm. that that would play into, doesn't it? You almost have to be a psychologist yeah. <laughs> element to it as well as a sports scientist. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that is an emerging area of research within the field of sports science and medicine is this idea, this concept of mental fatigue. You know, for the most part, when we talk about, when we use that word fatigue, we're talking about um, you know, the physical readiness of an athlete. So have the muscles recovered from training or from a game? You know, how do their, how do their bloods look, etc. But Mental fatigue is increasingly coming to be acknowledged as, um, you know, something worth considering. Very difficult to quantify, you know, because it's not something you can necessarily touch or, or measure or collect. But so, so to a large extent, we do rely on having to just speak to players and, and ask them, how do you feel? But um, yeah, there was a, a very recent research article published actually just last week, um, specifically on this idea of mental fatigue in football. Um, and the challenge that that poses because, you know, somebody's mental uh, readiness or fatigue can depend on a whole range of factors completely out with, you know, training and, and, and playing football on the pitch. You know, high level players have media commitments. They've got the, the glare of the media on them all the time. Um, and they have a home life just like the rest of us. They have, you know, life stresses that can all contribute to this this feeling of sometimes being tired or overwhelmed, etc. So, yeah, that definitely has to be taken into account when having the kind of conversations you referred to about, you know, should this player play or not? And it's uh, it's full of great area. You know, I think the key really from a sport science point of view is trying to get to the point where you've got a really good relationship with your manager. So, you know, the guys at Rangers, you know, I, I, I'm sure they do, but they will be very conscious of having a, a good open channel of communication with, with Gerard and being able to have those open conversations and, and sometimes being able to say, look, you know, the data is quite ambiguous here. You know, they, they may be fit, they may not. Ultimately, a decision always has to be made and it can't always be substantiated by, by hard evidence. What, one of the things that we always talk about when uh, a club's in a European arena and playing games in the Europa League or the Champions League is that it's difficult for them to then adapt back Mm -hmm. to the, the rudimentary games of the, of the league because the physical demands of playing in Europe mm -hmm. uh, against higher opposition. But there's also an element in terms of Rangers going away to a place like Russia, which mm -hmm. is a significant flight. What yeah. sort of um, damage can that do in terms of 
being in a rigid body position on a flight for mm -hmm. a certain amount of hours and, and how do you mitigate that as a sports scientist and or and do you believe that it is actually an issue mm -hmm. yeah it's a good good question again and, and it's an issue that's increasingly um having to be considered by by professionals working in sport um be, be that football or otherwise you know i think we live in a a world which is becoming more and more global and um you know there's there's murmurings beginning to bubble up about some sort of European Super League and, and I'm sure it won't be long before that becomes talk of a World League. So this idea of travel um, and the, the logistics that go into such long, you know, um, such kind of competitions is, is definitely an issue that needs some attention. There is actually quite a lot of research um, that's been, been done and papers that have been published addressing the kind of questions that, that you've asked there um, with relation to, to travel. Um, in, in short, as a summary, most of the evidence would suggest that short-haul flights, you know, so flights that are sort of three hours or less, really don't actually have that much of a tangible physical um, impact on athletes, on, on footballers' readiness to play and, and how they can perform. Um, however, that does that story changes when it when you take into account long-haul travel. So, you know, flights were you know, five, six hours or longer. So when we're talking about going from, from Glasgow to Russia, you know, we're beginning to get into the territory of flights that are, have quite a significant uh, amount of time, as you say, sat in a seat in a fairly uncomfortable position. So the evidence is, is there to suggest that that does actually have an effect on players' um, ability physically to perform. So their um, high-intensity running ability, or, or in layman's term, you know, their aerobic fitness, does take a hit when you have to endure long-haul travel. Um, and certainly perceptually, or you know, what I mean by that is players, you know, their own subjective feelings, you know, how they feel after travel. Again, the evidence would suggest that, especially after long-haul travel, they do feel worse for it. They're tired. You know, their mood's not as good. Um, they've probably not slept very well. Usually that's a consequence of, of long, long journeys on a plane is that sleep takes a hit. And we also know that a lack of sleep, um, at least in relation to some forms of exercise, can be, can be very detrimental. So, yeah, there's no doubt that um, international travel, um, you know, travelling far and wide in Europe to play games um, will definitely, definitely have an effect on um, players' ability to perform. Final question, Bob, just regarding young players, Rangers have got a number of impressive young loanees, two from Liverpool in particular, Ryan Kent and uh, Ovi Ajaria, who haven't played a lot of football up until signing for Rangers. Mm -hmm. uh, what about the, the impacts of playing that amount of games on young players? Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that it'll damage them in particular, but I suppose mm -hmm. when they haven't been used to it, mm -hmm. it's the question that I'm asking, how would it how would it affect them? And how will Rangers have to treat them maybe a little bit differently? Yeah, yeah, it's another one of those conundrums that um, is faced within football uh, quite a lot. Whenever a player makes that step up or, or begins that transition from being an academy player, an academy prospect and coming into the first team, um, it can be a huge, a huge shock to the system for them. You know, that full-time training environment um, can be relentless. You know, I think footballers often, you know, can take you know, the fact that the training is not that grueling in terms of the number of hours that they maybe spend exercising in comparison to some other sports, you know, namely your endurance sports like rowing and cycling, etc. But we have to remember that it is pretty much every day of the week. You know, of course, they have days off, but that training is relentless, you know. Um, so it's definitely, it's definitely a tough grind and very different to the academy setting where you might be in, 
you know, three three nights a week and then playing a game at the weekend. So it's definitely a big jump, um, and it's easy to understand how that can that can be quite stressful physiologically as well as mentally for for any young player coming into that environment. Um, one one particular study, actually, a piece of research that jumps to mind on that subject. Um, you know, kind of looked at that question and tried to see, you know, what is the the impact of a young player making that transition? Interestingly, the, the authors of that paper did find that there were higher rates of stress-related bone injuries in young players when they when they make that jump, um, which makes sense. You know, most players usually when they make that transition are still growing. You know, they're still maturing, um, which is a you know a demanding, taxing. Uh, process to be going through as, a, as an individual and when you then couple that with this intense and volume of training that they get um, it's no surprise that yeah it can sometimes have have an impact in terms of of injury and um, having said that you know a well-managed and sensible approach to introducing a player into that environment you know should allow you to mitigate that kind of risk um, but it, it just depends if that player is a particularly good player you know, who maybe does get a lot of game time very quickly. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, just just thinking about it intuitively, any any big spike in training and playing minutes um, is is going to be a very difficult thing for anybody's body to cope with. Okay, Bob, that was a fascinating insight into um, the potential sports science implications of uh, Rangers uh, and the amount of games they're playing. So, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys, well, I hope that gave you some insight into the um, the issues that Rangers have been facing. Um, Scott, we're going to move on now. We talked a little bit about the issues with regards to inspiration in the final third. It's something we've talked about again and again. But one of the things I asked you last week was to give me a name of a player that you felt could make the difference that Rangers could afford to sign in January. Yeah, And you said for me to go away and you would uh, come back with something this week now. This is perfectly ties in because we've got an article in the Daily Record website tomorrow with a list of names scouted by our very own Mark McDougall, so expect some craziness there. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but you have a name that you think should be top of Gerard's list. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's a bit of a wild one and, and people will probably shoot me down and no, laugh at it, but I just wondered... no. How possible it would be, even just to make the call or ask the question about uh, about Wayne Rooney, possibly coming back to the, you no, know, back to the UK after the MLS season's finished. Obviously, we've seen it happen before with guys in the MLS, the big names, guys like David Beckham, Robbie Keane, to name just a couple. It does happen quite often. Uh, and listen, I know it would be very difficult to pull it off. I don't know if Wayne Rooney would have any interest at all in coming back to or coming back to the UK or certainly going to going to Scotland. Um and listen, if there was any no, if anyone else was the manager of Rangers, any coach in the world was manager of Rangers, you would say that it was impossible. But with Steven Gerrard there, no fellow scouser, ex England international teammate, obviously knows Rooney well. The finances would be a problem, Johnny, of course they would. I don't know what Wayne Rooney will be on at uh, DC United, but it'll be a lot. He looks very happy in uh, Washington now. His family's obviously done well since going over there. So listen, it's a it's a real shot in the dark. But if Steven Gerrard was to, was to make the call and say, 
say to Wayne Rooney, listen, the MLS season's finished. How do you fancy it? I need a bit of creativity, middle to front. Come over, there'll be a couple of old firm games, something that I'm sure Rooney, you know, would, in terms of things that he wanted to do in his career, I'm sure that would have been uh, that would have been in there somewhere. Um, no, I just wonder what the what the response would be and if there would be any possibility. Because if we're talking about no genuine creativity and guile, you no, know, in that attacking third, then then who better? Um, obviously, he's a bit older now. He's decided to go to the, the MLS after so many years in the Premier League. But he's shown over there, obviously, how good he is. And listen, if if Wayne Rooney was ever to to come to Scottish football in the near future, I'm sure he would be a he'd be a revelation here. Um, and what a what a coup it would be for Rangers or Gerrard. As I say, it's a real real long shot. But I just wonder if it's crossed Gerrard's mind mind at all, and if he would ever. If he would ever ask the question of his of his pal to see if he see if he fancied it. Make it happen, Agent McDermott. Um <laughs> I've got a spanner to throw in your works though. Yeah. That that spanner comes on Twitter at twelve thirty two PM on the eighteenth of September two thousand eleven. Wayne Rooney on Twitter said gonna watch first half of Celtic versus Rangers. Moan the hoops. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that that is problematic. That's, that's, have we, have we got a PR man to bury that? Listen, it's slightly problematic, but no, was there no videos about no, it was Pedro Cachinho involved in a video supporting Celtic at one stage as well from his kind of uh, Mexican club camp? Yeah, listen, uh, this is just a bit of banter. These guys that are from uh, Liverpool are, are yeah. they Everton or Liverpool fans? It's listen, just like. Listen, Steve. If you if you spoke to most Celtic fans before Stephen Gerrard arrived at Rangers, in terms of who Stephen Gerrard would have supported, they I'm sure they would have all thought Celtic. I'm sure, I'm sure Stephen Gerrard spoke um, in kind of glowing terms. Not maybe about both of the old firm clubs, but I think I think Celtic fans probably thought Gerrard did a, did a kind of leaning towards them. Uh, and look look how that's worked out. So, listen, as I say, it's a massive. It's a massive long shot. Uh, however, it's just one I thought I'd throw out there. It has happened with these guys in the MLS before when they come back to the UK to keep themselves ticking over. I think Robbie Keane and David Beckham. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Robbie Keane went back to Aston Villa, I'm sure. Uh, Alec McLeish might have been the manager, actually, at Villa when that, when that happened. Um, so I just wonder. I just wonder whether it would be something that would appeal. Obviously, there would be huge obstacles take it over, um, particularly particularly with finance. But um, I just wonder whether it's worth worth asking the question. But who, who's the who's the guys that Mark's picked out as his top five? Um, okay, well, it sounds like we've got a visitor on there, Scott. Is that um, is that a new pundit on uh, uh, Record Rangers? Yeah, Elisa's Elisa's joined us. <laughs> <laughs> She'll probably talk I, I, more I, sense than us. To be fair, I know. Hey, that's all. She's got her. She's got her wee swizzle. <laughs> Brilliant, mate. Uh, right. So here's the names. Right. Go for it. Ben Woodburn. Not really getting a look in at Sheffield. Uh, is it Sheffield United? He's at. So. Right. Liverpool youth, obviously. Uh, I did. I did. I didn't realise he wasn't. He wasn't getting much of a game not, at Sheffield United. Not had a lot of chances, but then they are obviously flying. And John yeah. Fleck, who's a former Ranger. 
played yeah. very, very well in their, their sort of attacking midfield role there. Um, Lewis McLeod, six months left in his contract. For me, Scott, that's that would be yeah. a very, very big gamble on a player who's not played a lot of football, especially yeah, the, when you've got Jordan the, Rosser and yeah, Lawrence already on the staff. Well, so he's not a number 10, Johnny. He's Lewis McLeod's developed into a kind of a number six for Brentford, you know, sitting in front of the back four, doing that kind of quarterback playmaker role. So that's not what Rangers, I don't think that's what Rangers need at the moment. Uh, Nick Powell, who's a player that I, I don't know much about. I really like, I really like Nick Powell. Uh, was it Manchester United? He was, yep. Um, really like him. Has had a lot of, had a lot of injury problems when he went to Man United. He's kind of fought his way back now at Wigan, doing really well. But I think Nick Powell would cost you a lot of money. Johnny, I don't know what his, what his contract situation's like, uh, but I think it would cost you know, a few million quid to get him if he's got a couple of years left in his, in his deal. Um, Stephen Kelly, if, if uh, Rangers were going to bring someone through from the, the youths. And finally, here's a name for you, blast from the past, yeah. Scott Allen. Now, there's a name. Uh, listen, Scott Allen, I'm a bit biased because I'm a big fan of Scott Allen. Uh, I know him reasonably well. I've always thought I've always thought very highly of him just as a technical footballer. I think he's the type of boy that, you know, in certain teams who play certain ways, he would be able to get him playing, uh, playing anyone's company. Um but no, the problem is he's at Celtic, uh, of course. And no, when do players ever move direct from from Celtic to Rangers? I thought. I think they would have to be a, an agreement to rip up the contract. So yeah, Celtic pay him off. Yeah, he's available. even then, Johnny. I, th- I think. I mean, I thought when when Scott Allen well, clearly wasn't going to get a game at Celtic, and it wasn't going to happen for him. There have there have been times when I've thought if he goes away now. No, say he goes to like a, say he went to like a Wigan or a Peterborough or whoever, no, for a for a year or a couple of years, whatever. Uh, then, no, if he hit it off and Rangers were still interested, then that transfer could happen. Uh, I think while he's no at Celtic directly, it would be it would be difficult. But honestly, I mean Scott Allen, it's only four or five months ago Scott Allen was in a Hibs midfield that people were. No, people were wanting in the, the Scotland team. No, him beside Dylan McGeoch and John McGinn, who were absolutely flying as a as a trio. And talking about no breaking teams down or, or opening teams up, Scott Allen was doing that on a regular basis for Hibs. Um for Hibs. Why it's not worked out at Celtic, it's difficult. No, it's difficult at that at that club the way Celtic have been under Brendan Rogers the last couple of years to to break in and really, you know, the, the difference at, at Hibs is that both Alan Stubbs and Neil Lennon were able, first of all, to put an arm around Scott Allen, which I think he needs at times. I think he needs to be told, you know, how good he is and you know how good he can be. And he also has to be given license to go and to go and play, and that means other other guys doing doing shifts run about him. I don't think I don't think Brendan Rodgers can afford to give him that kind of luxury uh, at Celtic you know, when they're going for titles in Europe and all the rest of it and that's with all due respect to, to a club like Hibs um, but certainly in January teams I'm sure will come in for Scott Allen on loan 
I'd be surprised if there weren't Scottish Premiership teams, no good Scottish Premiership teams, uh, want to take him after what he did at Hibs last year. And listen, if you were if you're asking me, would Scott Allen go into the Rangers team now and make a difference middle to front? I think he would. I think he could get into that midfield three and create more than than what Rangers are creating at the minute. But it's just difficult to see that see that transfer happening while while he's still at Celtic. Um and obviously, you know, the Rangers punters no wouldn't have been happy at him signing for Celtic in the first place. I'm a believer that nowadays if you go if you go in and do the business, people quickly forget about it. But I think that'll be I think that'll be a difficult one to happen in the next the next few months, certainly. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you, Scott. Everything you've said there I agree with. Um if you look at Scott Allen and what he's produced when he has been in the team yeah. at Hibs, it is very, very good indeed. And it's up there with any of the midfielders in Scotland in terms of quality in that last third. That's exactly what Rangers yeah. need, but it's not a realistic one that it's going to happen. I, I, I can't see it. One that is realistic, Scott, that will happen is on the 1st of January next year, Carlos Pena will rock back in Ibrox. Oh, you've got Could to be kidding. Could it work? No, absolutely not. No, listen, you know my feelings on Pena, Johnny. It's, I don't think it's ever going to work. Um, I'd be amazed to see him leaving back in Glasgow, to be honest. I know he's still got time in his contract, but no, I just, I, I'll be amazed if I see pictures of Carlos Pena arriving back at Glasgow Airport, ready to get his Rangers training gear on and give it another, give it another go under Steven Gerrard, honestly. I'd be absolutely stunned. He, um, he's just not Gerrard's type of player in terms of the work no. rate that's going to be required to fit into that midfield, uh, I don't think. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Pena. Uh, I noticed yeah. in Rangers accounts that the amortisation uh, of players was up to 4.4 million, and that is the the downvaluing of certain players' transfer values. Yeah. And I wonder if that is partially Car- Par- Carlos Pena just being written off in the accounts. Yeah. It'll be Pena, Herrera, Cardozo, uh, to, name, to name but a few, I would assume. Uh, even maybe even guys like Jordan Rossiter, I suppose, who's, who's obviously obviously came with a high value, but you know hasn't been able to sh- show anything or, or enhance it due to due to injury. But um, no, listen, the, the the Mexican stroke Portuguese experiment clearly clearly didn't work. Pena, I mean, you're talking about Rangers needing you no know, needing creativity and Gallo middle to front. Carlos Pena certainly isn't the guy to provide it. Uh, I don't think he's got it, and he's I don't think he's got it in his locker. I know some uh, some crazy people, uh, Rangers people on Twitter, even towards the end, still thought that he had something and could produce something. But it was never going to happen for him. I'm sorry, I'm just no no buying it at all. I'm not sure what he's done in Mexico since he's gone back. But as I say, it's not a lot. I, no, I'd be absolutely flabbergasted if he's. If he's back in Glasgow in January, Rangers will need to obviously need to come to some sort of agreement where the where the contracts effectively effectively wrapped up and that he that he never comes back. Listen, you can't argue with the stats of he's had like fourteen appearances and scored five goals, so it was relatively good on that sense. But if you actually watched him in a ninety minute game, that's literally all he gave Aye. to that Rangers side. He was Aye. he had that ability to ghost in 
without anyone picking him up and, and pop the ball into the net. But if you're given absolutely nothing else to the team, then you're just a man down. And I, we've seen time and time again that Gerard demands work rate. So it, it's yeah. just n- never going to work. He struggled to pass the ball six. Shards, Johnny, in most of the games I watched, no, I respect if him scoring a couple of goals, as you say, ghosting in and getting on the end of things, fair enough, but the 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 basics of what was required of a midfielder at Rangers, Carlos Peña couldn't uh, couldn't produce it. Uh, he was thrown in in an old firm game to try and stop Scott Brown playing, if you remember, and Brown went on to, to run the, the entire game at Ibrooks in a and a heavy a, a defeat for for Rangers and and Kishina. So as I say, there's it didn't work out. Um, Gerard, I think Gerard would take one look at him and say, "No, you're no for you're no for me." I mean, we think of the we've spoke about Gerard's pre-season in Spain and the work that they put in over there. I mean, can you imagine Peña doing that that kind of shift in pre-season? Um, I just, I just can't see it, and there's, I don't think Gerard will be in a hurry. Certainly, when he's looking at loan players to maybe try and recall what he's weighing up, guys, I don't think Peña will be top of his list. Yeah, given how uh, honest he's been about Umar Sadiq, it would be interesting to hear Gerard's opinions yeah, on uh, Peña if he came in for for a month. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna call it a day there, Scott. But just before we go, um, a wee prediction for Spartak Rangers have performed pretty magnificently away from home in Europe and the, the team seems to be set up in that counter-attacking vein quite nicely yeah. for European ties. What are you going for? Tough one, Johnny. I mean, I know Sparta are going through a difficult time at the moment. Obviously, they lost again at the weekend. There's Four home games on the spin, mate. Yeah, there's been a change of manager and all that. Because, listen, because of that, and because of what you said about Rangers, their form away from home in Europe has been good. Second half in Villarreal was was outstanding. No, getting back into that, getting back into that game, I'm going to be no be optimistic and say they can they can get a, get another point in Moscow, whether it be nil nil or one 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 all. Um, I think they can go over there and get something, but it's going to be it's going to be tough. It's always tough going over there. So, I think if Gerard uh, comes back with another another point on the board, they'd be absolutely delighted. Yeah, I think Spartak are under a lot of pressure. They're sitting seventh in the uh, Russian Championship and the league is far from their priority, especially given where they're sitting in the, the table. Now, that will change if they beat Rangers, to be fair, at home. Yeah. However, I, I strongly fancy Rangers to get a result and I think they could even win. That's all from us. We'll be back next midweek with more news and analysis of all things Rangers. If you want to get in touch with us to continue the debate, you can. Scott's on Twitter at Scott McDermott 8 I'm on Twitter at Johnny R. McFarlane. So if you've got any questions or comments, hit us up there. Don't forget to subscribe at iTunes or Acast to get the podcast the minute it becomes available. And if you liked it, please review and rate us on there too. Thanks for listening.